Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Um, if, if you're new to the Bible or new to the church or whatever, the book of Acts is in the New Testament. Um, and so it starts Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's right after where we left off last week in the book of Acts. And when you get to the book of in the Gospel of John, when you get to the book of Acts, go ahead and flip over to chapter 15, and we'll get there in just a little bit. Um, like I said, today we're excited to be resuming our study in the book of Acts, and we've been calling this the Gospel Unleashed. Uh, we call it that because that's exactly what we're seeing take place in the book of Acts, we're seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ being uh, unleashed upon the world. And by way of reminder, the gospel being the exceedingly good news that Jesus is the way of salvation, the way of restoration for all who will put their trust in him and, um, and all who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation to God will indeed have their sins forgiven and will indeed be reconciled in their relationship with God the Father. And anyone who trusts Jesus this way uh, will be given everlasting life with God Himself uh, by the Spirit of God. And indeed will be indwelled and empowered by that same Spirit of God to go forth and make more disciples of Jesus. Right? And that's, that's exceedingly good news. And that's what we see taking place here. The fulfillment of these promises of the gospel are taking place here in the book of Acts. The disciples have um, come to see Jesus as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. He's the Savior. He is the, um, the one who has completed the law for them. He lives the law perfectly. He died on their behalf and they put their trust in Him. And then they are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and then they are sent out to make more disciples of Jesus, people who can be reconciled to God. And that's what they're doing. And that was the great commission that Jesus had given them to do before He left the earth to go back to be with the Father. And by the way, that's also the great commission by way of extension that He has given us. And so we're grateful to be able to continue that on here as the church today. And up until this point in Luke's account, that's who uh, wrote the book of Acts, Luke is kind of recounting things. And all the major difficulty that the church had faced up until this point came from outside the church. They've been persecuted a lot. They would have to go from one place to another, and they would be driven out of the synagogues and things like that. And the persecution was coming from outside the church. Um, but uh, today, uh, we will see now in Acts chapter 15, where we pick up the turmoil is coming from within the church itself. It's no longer just from the Roman political leaders or some of the Jewish religious leaders. It is from this turmoil is coming from within inside the church, and it's all going to be centered on the idea of law versus grace, and they're going to be working these things out uh, together. And truly, the difference between those two things, between law and grace, is essentially um, the difference between being uh, really, really good or being truly holy. That's the difference between being good and being holy. It's the difference between uh, being man-centered or being Jesus-centered. And that's why I've titled my... uh, Time or our time together today is Jesus plus. Jesus plus. If you're a note taker, you want to write that down. And you can even put a blank out beside that. Jesus plus blank. 
See, as Reach Life Church, we are gospel-centered. I don't know if you recognize that. We, we talk about the gospel all the time. Uh, but in order to be gospel-centered well, gospel-centered means having Jesus as the grounding and purpose and mode through which we want to do everything. There's a reason we do everything. But so to be gospel-centered very well, we need to be, see that first sign over there on the wall? Biblically rooted. In order to be truly gospel-centered, we have to be biblically rooted. We want to make sure that the gospel we preach and seek to live out is a Jesus-centered, Christocentric gospel, not a humanistic, man-centered gospel. And that's really what our passage is about today. In Acts chapter 15, let's go ahead and read it together. Is it okay to read a whole chapter of the Bible together uh, as a church gathering? I hope, I hope so. Praise God. Uh, Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, by the way, pause, no small dissension means they were going at it, man. <laughs> right? That, that's a big dissension. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed, them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, uh, this is uh, Peter, has related, all, um, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from the people for his name. I'm, I'm going to get this right. To take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22. 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time together, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Man, I thank God for his word. Um, so un just so we know, understanding these issues that are taking place in our passage this morning is going to take a little bit of uh, background work, okay? A little, little background work this morning. So we're going to be looking through the historical lens of the people that were at this council, the, the Jerusalem council, and the people to whom Luke was writing the book of Acts. And so um, this may feel uh, a tad like a seminary class for just a little bit, um, but we want to take the Bible as seriously as we can. We want to understand the Bible as best and as accurately as we can. Then when we get there, we'll see that our application is actually not uh, that complicated. It's pretty straightforward. It may be difficult to live out, but it won't be difficult to understand, okay? Um, but first, we need to understand it well, and to do that, we've got to do some historical uh, works. Everybody with me? Get you, got your shovels ready to dig in a little bit? So um, context is always important, you know. Uh, but especially when you're trying to properly uh, interpret the Bible. Context is king. It's super important. So let's just remember that history tells us that the, in the earliest days of the Christian church, everybody was Jewish. Right? The first Christians were all Jews. Um, and that's super important to our passage. We read back in Acts chapter 8 when we were there uh, several months ago that the gospel spread then from the Jews to Samaritans who were ethnically mixed people. They were um, part Jew, part Gentile, and a lot of Samaritans received Jesus as the Savior. Then in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter, as Peter said here at this council, he was the first people to take the gospel to Gentiles. Gentiles are totally non-Jewish people, ethnically, completely non-Jewish people, and, and many Gentiles Receive Christ. And then in Acts 13 to 14, Paul and Barnabas began to have this really fruitful ministry among the Gentiles, non Jewish people, so that now all these Gentiles are turning to faith in Jesus. And it's causing a lot of concerns among the people who were previously the, the church, all these Jewish people who had come to realize that Jesus is, 
is the Jewish Messiah. And so the kind of the issues that caused concern uh, were ultimately decided here at this council that we looked at in Acts chapter 15. And so you may have noticed in your Bible, Acts chapter 15 is like right in the middle of the book. Um, but it's also right in the middle of kind of the flow of the church as we read it in the, in the book of Acts, because everything is going to kind of hinge as the church goes forward on what took place at this council. Um, so there are a lot of Jews, including some who were Pharisees, and that's a sort of some of the religious uh, leaders in Judaism. And they had come to see the truth that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the, the Jewish Messiah. And he was and is God the Son in the flesh, given for their reconciliation to the Father. But now they've got a problem. What about all these non-Jewish people? And the reason that's a problem is because these non-Jewish people were not um, raised in and uh, accustomed to, certainly didn't follow for themselves the Jewish traditions, the Jewish ceremonies, their uh their uh, food practices, um, and, and they certainly weren't, weren't historically part of God's covenant people. Okay, so this, this is a big deal, right? And so the issues at hand in our passage really centered around two questions. You'll see them coming up on the screen. They were kind of asking, do Gentiles first have to become Jews before they can become Christians? And then do Gentiles have to observe the Mosaic law, the law God gave to Moses, after they become Christians? Those are really the central questions there. Um, so the debate, just get in your head, the debate was not about whether Gentiles could become Christians or whether Gentiles should be accepted into the Christian fellowship, the church. It was about how Gentiles should be accepted into the fellowship of the church. Um, so... Some of the Jewish Christians felt that Gentiles should be received into the fellowship the same way that non-Jews had always been received into the covenant people of God. And that was through uh, like an initiation process. And this involved, like you read in our passage, circumcision for all the males. And all converts uh, to Judaism um, would take upon themselves all traditions, all uh, everything in the, the Mosaic law, they would take upon themselves. For all intents and purposes, you would become a Jew, right, to be considered a part of the people of God, not only in religious conviction, but again, in their remembrances, their ways of life, their customs, all those things. So essentially, these Jewish Christians were asking, shouldn't Gentiles be required to become Jews in order to share in this very Jewish religion of Christianity? It, it, it's a natural... Coming from their perspective, it's a natural question. Right? It, would, it, would make, it would make sense to them. Uh, a perfectly fine question to ask. I mean, think about it. Well, as we said, the first Christians were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. He's the Jewish Messiah. God had only one covenant people ever in history, the Jews. Christianity was a messianic movement within Judaism. Right? It wasn't a separate religion initially, right? It was... They were the Jews who feel like they're what they, we would call completed Jews. We've been looking for the Messiah, and here he is. His name is Jesus. Um, and Jews had always demanded of all Gentile con converts to Judaism requirements of circumcision and, and everything included uh, for the law of Moses in Torah. So the question was, why, why should that change now? Didn't these new Gentile converts 
to the very Jewish religion of Christianity need to become Jews before they could become Christians? Uh, why, why wouldn't they? Or, or, or at least, wouldn't they have to eventually become Jewish in order to be good Christians? Right? Those are two questions. Wouldn't they have to become Jewish before they became Christians? Or maybe at least, wouldn't they have to observe the Mosaic Law, become Jews, after they were Christians in order to be good ones, right? In order to be good ones. And think about this even on a, uh, on a practical level. If you have good law-abiding Jewish Christians who seriously observed all the ceremonial laws, all the civil laws, all the things in the, mall, in the law of Moses, what would it even look like for now Gentiles like, like me to jump into that, and I don't observe any of that stuff. Right? How are we going to do fellowship together? How are we going to have meals together? How are we going to worship together? It's going to look very different. How practically can we make all of this happen? Um, if you know anything about the, the Jewish law and history and how all-encompassing it was, you can see how this might be a problem if you've got a bunch of me's running around in there that don't practice any of those things. Um, so as we said, those are their, the two questions they were facing. And I want you to just real briefly, we're almost finished with the history stuff here, I promise. Uh, just see three uh, distinctions that scholars make um, about different types of law that God gave the Hebrew people. He, got, he gave them civil law, which is like, okay, how do we, you know, that's where you hear like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, stuff like that. Capital punishment for sexual sin. Um, having to build a fence around the roof of your house. Some of those things were civil laws. That's ceremonial laws. These were things that were ritualistic cleansings, um, like removing all leaven from your house at certain times and uh, foods that were clean and unclean. You may have heard of the idea of like kosher, sort of like that. Uh, as well as, again, circumcision, the main piece being discussed here at the Council of Jerusalem. So there's civil law, ceremonial law, and then there's moral law. The moral law is essentially the Ten Commandments. Um, and they are supposed to govern how we interact with God and one another. Again, ci civil, ceremonial, and moral. The civil law, uh, or the ceremonial law, was never meant to apply to Gentiles, even in the Old Testament. It's important to remember. Even in the Old Testament, they were given specifically to the Hebrew people to set them apart from the Gentile people who worshipped false gods. That's what the ceremonial law was for. So a Gentile sojourner or visitor who happened to be in the land of the Hebrews wasn't expected to follow these ceremonial laws. The civil law was also specifically given to the Hebrews under Moses for a specific time at a specific place. They were never meant to be universal nor permanent. Uh, and so for these reasons, we don't see the civil or ceremonial laws being uh, laid upon the people in the New Testament. We just don't see it. Um, and it's being directly addressed here in our passage. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus didn't come to abolish those laws, but in Jesus, those laws have been fulfilled. He has completed those laws. And so that's why they weren't laid upon, a yoke upon the people in the New Testament. Now, along those lines, let's return to our passage and look at what might be a potential confusion to you this morning, because it was to me. Okay, when I, when I read it, it was a little, because we're talking about, okay, these laws don't apply anymore and we're not supposed to follow them. And, but James actually includes part of the ceremonial law in his advice to the council. Did you see that in, 19, in verses 19 and 20? Let's read it again. 
Therefore, my judgment, James says, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Okay, that seems like one statement. Don't bother them with these things. Now look at verse 20. But should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, ceremonial law, from sexual immorality, moral law, and from what was being strangled, and from blood, ceremonial law. <laughs> right? Like, uh, so you see... It seems like James is mix is getting things mixed up here, but because um, we, didn't we just learn that the dietary laws don't apply? Ceremonial laws don't apply. Doesn't Paul teach us that it's perfectly, we, we have freedom in Christ to eat meat like that, meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Paul says you have freedom to do that. Uh, didn't Peter and James, both earlier in their statements in this very passage, this same text, say that the Mosaic law doesn't apply? to Gentile converts to Christianity. Uh, Peter even called it, Peter even said, why are you testing God by trying to put this yoke upon people? Um, He calls it a burden. Um, So just to be clear, James isn't contradicting Peter. James isn't contradicting Paul, and James is not contradicting himself early in this passage. Again, history and context are helpful here. Again, remember, all the church had up until this point been Jews. Now the question was, how are we practically going to do this thing together, do this thing, meaning be the church, together with these non-Jews? So in context, James is suggesting, and the council ends up agreeing, that the civil and ceremonial laws don't apply to New Testament believers, but so that they can operate together, it would behoove the Gentile believers to follow certain things, right? so that they can do fellowship with these Jews who have been under the Mosaic law. So it was for fellowship, not for salvation or holiness. Notice in verse 29, it says, if they do these things, they will do well. It doesn't say they will be saved. It doesn't say they will be made more holy. They will do well. Their fellowship will go well together is what's being referred to here. And think about this practically for us. If, if, uh, If you're a Christian... In our Christian freedom, we're not bound by the old covenant law. We're under the new covenant of Christ. But don't we make accommodations for our brothers and sisters who have different convictions about different things with one another? At least we should, right? Uh, The Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something if it's going to give your brother offense or cause them to stumble, right? We make accommodations for one another. And so that's what's going on here. Um, now notice, again, that they also write that the Gentile converts should abstain from sexual immorality. Well, that is part of the moral law, and that does apply to all people in all times everywhere. But it seems, at least to my reading, that this apparently must have been a particular problem among these Gentiles. And knowing the Greco-Roman society at the time, that wouldn't be a surprise, would it? Uh, so James... Uh, Uh, The Apostle James suggests, and the council agrees, tell them to stop it, (laughs) right? And so that's that's always good advice. And we can say more, but I hope that would clear up any type of confusion. So we've seen our two questions arise. Do Gentiles first have to become Jews before they become Christians? And do Gentiles have to observe the Mosaic law after they become Christians? And so Peter and James and the elders answer this really clearly. And in case my circuitous history lesson didn't, Uh, Make it clear. Let's read again verses 6 through 11, can we? The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, 
You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. Pause. You get the Holy Spirit when? At salvation. We are baptized by one spirit into one body, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit. Um, And he made no distinction between them and us. Very clear here. Having cleansed their hearts by what? Faith. Thank you very much. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through what? The grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. By grace, through faith, is salvation, right? Uh, So the Jerusalem Council answered their two questions about do Christians need to become Jews with a resounding no. No, that no Gentiles don't have to become Jews before they become Christians, and they don't have to follow the Mosaic law after they become Christians. Well, you may say, that's the, okay, that's a neat little history lesson. So what? That's time for the so what, right? So let's get to the so what. This is actually really, really important to us as the church today. So check this out. For us, those same two questions may look like this. Do blank have to first become blank before they can become Christians? And do blank have to observe the blank after they become Christians? I want you to think about that for a minute. Now, I left those blank because what you put in those blanks and what I would put in those blanks may be different, right? So what you would be tempted to put in a people category, do blank have to first become Christians or have to have to become whatever before they can become Christians? You might put... Do uh, Democrats have to first become Republicans before they become Christians? Or do Republicans first have to become Democrats before they become Christians? You see what I'm saying? What you would put in there and what your neighbor may put in there may be two different things. So I left them blank on purpose. But you know, if you really boil down to it, those questions could be reworded like this. You'll see that coming up on. Does Jesus plus blank equal salvation? And does Jesus plus blank equal sanctification? In other words, sanctification is the growth in holiness, right? Does Jesus plus blank equal salvation? And does Jesus plus blank equal sanctification? That's how we might ask those questions, maybe not out loud, but in our subconscious as we deal with one another. Um, I read a powerful book summary, and I want to share it with you. This guy named Kevin Holleron uh, walks through a book by Paul David Tripp and Timothy Lane. And the book's called, if you want to write it down, How People Change, How Christ Changes Us by His Grace. Just how people change. And in the book, they share seven dangerous distortions of the gospel. We'll call them Jesus Plus. Um, the first one they mention, and I'll use their names, but then I'll apply it to us. The first one they mention is formalism. Formalism. And this is Jesus plus Christian activities. Jesus plus Christian activities. On Jesus plus Christian activities, this reduces the gospel, which should be the good news about Jesus and salvation. It reduces the gospel to participation in church meetings and church ministry. Uh, Not that those things are bad. Those things are great. 
but they're not the gospel, right? Um, so external actions like church attendance and serving with the church can be substituted for a real relationship with Jesus. Those of you who grew up in the church may uh, have experienced that yourself or see that in the life of others, whether they're really active, but they don't bear fruit of the Spirit. Um, so they've maybe in some ways substituted those things. People can see, maybe never see their true need to be made new by God, to repent of their sin and be forgiven because they're so active in the church, because they've substituted activity with salvation and sanctification. Um, the second thing that they mention is legalism. We'll call this Jesus plus do's and don'ts. Like a, 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 a list of things, uh, of do's and don'ts. And uh, this is what the Jewish Christians were um, kind of sliding into in our passage uh, today. Maybe um, the, the, those do's and don'ts were, you know, you have to, the, the pastor has to wear a suit or you, the Sunday worship, or worship gathering has to be on Sundays or you can only use certain translations of the Bible or no tattoos or guys, definitely no skinny jeans. I may say amen to that one. Definitely no skinny jeans. Uh, the book says this, legalism ignores the depth of our inability to earn God's favor. It forgets the need for our hearts to be transformed by God's grace. Legalism is not a reduction of the gospel. It is another gospel altogether. Where salvation is earned by keeping rules. And we know you can't earn salvation in any way. It's by grace through faith. We just talked about that, didn't we? Uh, and the third thing they talk about is mysticism. Maybe I'm. Maybe we're hitting some some of us this morning. Maybe we're. Oh, maybe maybe I got a little of that in there. Just keep listening. The next one uh, they list is mysticism. This is Jesus plus spiritual experiences. Again, uh, living according to a cert to certain rules is not a bad thing. It's a good thing but it's not the gospel. Uh, being part of the church and its activities and ministries is a good thing, but it's not the gospel. Spiritual experiences are a good thing. They are not the gospel. You know, Christianity uh, is a religion that kind of touches all areas of life, including the emotional, including the experiential. Um, but the error here of Jesus plus spiritual experiences overemphasizes the emotional. And the experiment, and the experimental, experimental, experiential. Thank you. Uh, elements of our Christian faith, and it forgets that work, God works in our lives through the gospel, even when we can't feel it, even when we don't see an experience, or even when we don't see fruit right away, or have some mountaintop thing, or some rush of emotion. God is still God. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are still his, and he is still working, okay? Um, so Jesus plus spiritual experiences reduces that sort of thing. Um, we're supposed to pursue Christ first and not necessarily a feeling. The next thing they list is activism, and I just call this Jesus plus activism. It takes the gospel, and um, or this type of gospel distorts um, what could be an important issue and makes it an ultimate issue, right? So uh, we can think about uh, social 
and socio-political issues. So in your mind, a certain left, right, center view, whichever you know, like uh, mindset you're from, a certain stance on a certain issue has to be in accordance with how you see it, or that person may not be a true Christian. You begin to, tr- to question their Christianity or their sanctification, their holiness, um, because they don't share your view. Now, maybe your view's right. And maybe that person needs to take their thoughts captive according to Christ. But our attitude, our position needs to be, my position could be wrong too. Maybe I need to take every thought captive according to Christ, right? And so we can have that, that mutual humility in pursuit of truth if we don't place activism above the gospel, right? That's how that is supposed to work. We can't reduce and define Christian maturity as a willingness to take a certain political stance or social, uh, social stance. The next thing they talk about is biblicism. This is Jesus plus intellectualism, right? These are, this is when you can really, man, you can be a great student of the word. You can be really, really in the word, but by fruit of your life, it doesn't seem that the word is in you. You can have a great grasp of the word of God, but the word of God not have a great grasp of you. That's a real possibility. And, you know, you can reduce faith to mere knowledge or having good theology. And you forget that, man, the fundamental thing about our relationship with God is not knowledge. It's submission to Christ, right? Um, Again, I'm not anti-intellectual. I'm a nerd. You guys know that. Um, But knowledge is not not, uh, saving. The Bible doesn't save me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ received by faith saves me. Uh, the book says this, the biblicist has invested a great deal of time and energy mastering the word, but he does not allow the word to master him. In summary, biblicism reduces the gospel to a mastery of biblical content and theology. The next thing they talk about is psychologism. And I just call that Jesus plus having my problems fixed. Does Jesus plus having my problems fixed equal salvation? Or does Jesus plus having my problems fixed equal sanctification? Um, this, this kind of trap, this distortion of the gospel often reduces things to uh, the gospel to a self-help sort of thing. If I'm healthier, wealthier, and wiser um, through the gospel, then the gospel's effective or I'm following the gospel. But if I got problems, then something must be wrong with the gospel. Um. <laughs> You know, God uh, does want to heal our emotional hurts. God does want to, um, however, primarily deal with our sin problem. You know why we hurt one another? We have a sin problem, right? (laughs) And so God's concern is to get at the root, dig that thing up. And the root is our sin, my sin. And the reason I hurt you is because I'm a sinner. Right, So God does want to heal our hurts, but he primarily wants to heal our sin. Um, you know, um, and on this uh, Jesus plus having my problems fixed thing, the worst sin is the sin of another person against me. 
and you know, usually you can just be the victim in, in, that, in that situation. The book says, whenever you view the sin of another against you as a greater problem than your own sin, you will tend to seek Christ, hear this, as your therapist more than you seek Him as your Savior. Christianity becomes more a pursuit of healing than a pursuit of godliness. The gospel is reduced to the healing of emotional needs. The last one, number seven, that they list, they call it socialism. It's not talking about the socioeconomic theory. Uh, so I think they've uh, chosen that name poorly. But this view, they're talking about the view that emphasizes social relationships within the church in an unhealthy way. And I just call this Jesus plus my homies. Right? So now listen, uh, notice all these things we've listed are really good things, but if we replace them, uh, if we put them in place of the real gospel, they become really bad things and twisted things and cause dissension among us like we're seeing in our passage today. Um, So Christian relationships are beautiful. It's special, but it it can turn into a social club if we start emphasizing our relationships over growing in Christ. It can become that sort of social club thing. When a community, um, you know, so for example, like if, if a church changes or discontinues or replaces your favorite ministry, which had you around your favorite people, how would you respond in your heart? What's your knee-jerk reaction? I'm not saying it's definite, but it could be that you're falling into the Jesus plus my homies situation because you you know if your knee-jerk reaction is to become disillusioned with the church all of a sudden I mean, you haven't met with the pastors you haven't asked why they made this change maybe they were wrong but they won't know they're wrong unless you meet with them and tell them right um, but your first your knee-jerk reaction is to be maybe even disillusioned in your faith but certainly with the church um, the book says the grace of friendship has replaced Christ then in this scenario as the thing that gave the person identity, purpose, and hope. The gospel had been reduced to a network of fulfilling Christian relationships. Now again, Christian relationships are awesome. I praise God for you guys. There's nothing like good, solid, Jesus-loving, Jesus-serving, Jesus-following friends. It's beautiful. But you guys are not the gospel, and I'm not the gospel. You are not Jesus, and I'm not Jesus. Right? So it's super important. Um, so your Jesus plus thing may not be on this list. Right? This is just a, a um, something to get the wheels turning. But the point is, is that there should be no plus. It should be Jesus plus nothing. Right? When we add anything to the gospel, or we put anything higher than in priority than God's gracious gift of salvation, God's gracious gift of sanctification to us, then we end up harming our fellowship with God. We end up harming our fellowship with one another as the church. We actually end up harming ourselves, and we may not realize it yet. Um, So what are we supposed to do then? Um, How do we fix this so that we um, don't harm one another, don't harm our relationship with God, we don't harm ourselves in this way. It's going to be coming up on the screen. You don't have to um, turn there. 
But the answer's in the Bible. Uh, surprise. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We have to remember this. This is how we fix things and prevent things. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is the gospel. That is what we have to remember. But notice what it says about good works. They don't make us righteous. They are the result of righteousness that Jesus has imputed or or, uh, placed upon our account, his own righteousness in place of my sinfulness. Jesus says, here is my account, a perfect, perfect, sinless life before the Father. Father, will you accept my life on behalf of theirs? And the Father graciously says, yes, if you've placed your faith in what Jesus has done. And so our good works are the result of that. Our good works are the result of having accepted Jesus's righteousness and therefore our good works um, righteous living results because you've been made a new creation. Righteous living doesn't make you a new creation, right? We don't, we don't get it twi- twisted and, and, and backward. Um, we are saved by faith, not our own. Our good works are folly. You guys realize that? How good is good enough? Let me ask you a question. If, if, if these people in our passage today in Acts 15, let's say all the guys got circumcised. Do you know that they could go from being uncircumcised to circumcised and still lost? Do you know that? It's like, uh, it's like the church thing of, of being baptized. The old, the old saying is, uh, the old Baptist saying is like, um, if someone hasn't actually come to faith in Jesus and, you, and they get baptized, they go, they go down a dry center and they come up a wet center, right? It's just water, right? So that none of our good works, not that good works are bad, but none of our good works save us. They are the result of salvation. So there should be fruit of the Spirit, you know. We should constantly be uh, seeking further and more deeply to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, to love God increasingly with all of our emotions, our will, our intellect, and our bodies. That's, that's part of the Christian faith. And then as we mutually do that, as we love God more and more, all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our body, by His grace, we will walk in humble fellowship with God. And guess what happens? By default, we walk in humble fellowship with one another. Gospel-centeredness, right? Not the law. Grace. Grace. Praise God for His grace. Let's pray together.